this has been a really, really good week at our house. Tuesday, we picked up Mason. And he's been here with us all week long. And then Friday night, Matt and Ryan brought Hudson. And he's been here all weekend. And by the way, we did let Matt and Ryan stay too. The point is, we've had those two grandsons at our house this week. And we've been to the park, and we've been to the library book sale. Mason and I went and got our hair cut. We bought a toy or two or three. We've had water gun fights and Nerf gun fights, and we've had pancakes, and we've had cinnamon rolls, and we've packed about as much into five or six days as you could possibly pack into them. And I hope, as those boys get a little older, that someday they will look back and they'll have some very special memories of times they spent at Poppy and Gigi's house. Memories like I have of spending time with my grandparents when I was young. As we were playing this week and doing all the things that we did, my mind went back to going to Grandmother Perkins' house when I was little. She worked at Sears Roebuck, and so there was only one day a week that she would have a day off. It sometimes was Thursday. It sometimes was Friday. On very rare occasions, it was Saturday. But on her day off from Sears Roebuck, I would go and spend the day with her. And in the afternoon, she would reach into the cabinet and she'd get out her big glass pitcher. And she'd start cutting lemons in half. And she'd cut those lemons in half and squeeze them by hand into that glass pitcher. And then she'd get out her tin measuring cup and she'd measure a lot of sugar and pour in that lemon juice. And then she'd fill the pitcher up with water and give it a really good stir. Pack a couple of glasses with ice and pour that lemonade over the ice and we'd go sit in the glider on her screened in front porch and we'd watch the world go by. We'd sit there. We'd talk about the things a little boy and his grandmother talk about. And life was good. And I've spent nearly half a century trying to make lemonade that tasted that good again. And I've never succeeded. In our text this morning, the psalmist is actually writing about making lemonade. In Psalms 119 and verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Dr. Moffat translates the passage, It is good for me to have been in trouble. Here's a man that's looking at life in the rearview mirror. 
He's glancing over his shoulder at the way along which he has come. And as he glances over his shoulder at the way that he's been in life and the path that he's taken, he realizes something. He realizes life has not always been easy. He knows the way has not always been through green pastures and beside still waters. There have been times that life has taken him into deep valleys. And there are other times that he has had to climb rugged mountains. He has not led a sheltered life. At times there have been storms that have blown through his life. Treasures that he held on to with devotion have been jerked from his grasp. More than once his face has been wet with hot and blinding tears. There have been times that life has brought to him the sourness of lemons. But as he looks upon those days of stress and strain, he comes to a very important realization. And that is, things have not been as disastrous as he thought they were when he was passing through them. Looking back with his 2020 hindsight, he realizes those things he's passed through have brought him no lasting harm at all. He actually sees they've brought him good. The troubles, the things he thought were going to be his undoing, those are the things that have been the making of him. His losses have become gains. His calamities have been changed into capital. The sour lemons of life have been made into sweet lemonade. Lemonade is sweet as the lemonade I drank on grandmother's front porch in those days gone by. Now we're separated from this ancient writer by seas and centuries and continents. We're separated by different customs and manners of living. But rest assured, we're like this man in one very important way. And that is that we all have our troubles. Every one of us have been through trying conflicts from which we have come forth wounded. There have been times that storms in our lives have smashed our houses of happiness. We don't get very far down the pathway of life without realizing that Job of old was probably on to something when he said man is born under trouble as the sparks fly upward. That's in Job 5 and verse 7. And traveling down the pathway of life and looking at that, we realize there is something more there in that passage than just blind pessimism. And because of that, We're interested in the struggles and we're interested in the trials of the psalmist that wrote these words. It's good that I've been in trouble. Because you see, that psalmist, that writer, that man that said, it is good for me to have been in trouble, he is so much like us. 
What was his problem? What were his troubles? We don't know. His trials might have been something obvious. It might have been some visible misfortune that the whole world could see. Maybe his life was one long battle with pain for years and years. Maybe he was like Ezekiel in that the light of his eyes had been taken away in an instant. His sorrow. It may have been something the world was completely unaware of. He may have been bleeding from some hidden wound. He might have worn sackcloth within. While to the world he showed the royal purple of a cheerful countenance. Maybe this man was weeping in secret over some sordid tragedy of his own life or the life of someone dear to him. And it was so much harder to bear because he couldn't share it. Not even with his dearest friend. What was his trouble? We have no idea. But we're sure of this. His life was not without tragedy. Yours hasn't been either. And neither has mine. And yet, thanks be to God, life has not been all shadow for any of us. And neither has it been all sunshine. Every one of us in this building this morning, at some point, have seen our skies suddenly grow dark with a gathering storm. We have felt the frigid chill of dreams and hopes and ambitions that never quite came true. And even to those that hasn't happened to yet, the chances are someday it will. We may sail the sea of life on calm and smooth seas for many years, and then the storm comes. Admittedly, life does deal more roughly with some than it does with others. But to every man and woman on the top side of God's green earth, sooner or later the gray days of bewilderment and trouble come into their lives. The question becomes, how do we handle it? How do we handle the universal experience of trouble? We can, if we want to, take the attitude of surrender. Some folks, I've known them, you've known them, they're ready to quit the fight at the very first painful wound they receive in life. They walk along cheerfully and happily until cruel fate trips them one day and they fall flat on their face. And having fallen, rather than getting back up, they lie there and whine and cry and moan about their lot in life and tragically spend the rest of their days almost as spiritual invalids. 
And they feel like life has never dwelt quite so harshly with anyone as it has with them. And in their surrender, they add to their own trouble and to the trouble of those around them. Surrender. That was the blunder made by Miss Havisham in Dickens' Great Expectations. Do you remember it from literature? Remember, Miss Havisham was to be married. And all the guests had assembled for the wedding. The caterer had everything just so. The wedding cake was on the table. The bride had said yes to the dress and was all decked out. And the bridegroom never came. Therefore, her watch and every clock in the house was stopped at 20 minutes to nine. The hour of her humiliation. The hour of her first and one great sorrow. All sunlight was shut out of her home and she lived in the dark except for the candles. Her wedding cake stood on the table till the cobwebs wrapped around it and it became the homing place of spiders and mice. Her once white, beautiful wedding dress hung in yellow decay about her shrunken figure. Because for Miss Havisham, all of life had stopped at the hour of her tragic disappointment. She met her sorrow with an unconditional surrender. And then think about Judas Iscariot. And think about what a great tragedy his life was. And what was the climax of that tragedy? The climax of the great tragedy of the life of Judas is not altogether the fact that he betrayed Jesus. It's not the pangs of hell that got hold of him in the damning realization of the terrible crime he was guilty of. The great tragedy in the life of Judas Iscariot was that after his deed of treachery, Judas did not make a new start. The betrayal of Jesus was ugly, and that's a given. But the thing that wrecked Judas was, after the betrayal, he was too cowardly to pick up the shattered ruins of his broken life and start over. Much more deadly than his kiss of treachery was his failure to come back to the Master he had so deeply wronged and ask for a chance to make a new start. Judas had spent three years in the company of Jesus Christ. And even after three years in the company of Jesus Christ, he still did not understand the heart of Jesus was willing to forgive him. If he would only repent and start over. Sometimes instead of surrender, 
We allow our troubles to make us hard and cynical. And becoming hard and cynical is nothing more than a synonym for surrender. That's the surrender of the strong, while the other is the surrender of the weak. There are those who gather strength by the buffetings they pass through. But sometimes, through their grim fightings, they overdevelop their sense of pugnacity. And they come to view all weakness with scorn and contempt rather than with sympathy. There are few losses sadder than a lost sorrow. There's a sorrow that embitters rather than sweetens and makes us tender and sympathetic. And then there's the third group of dealing with their troubles, and that's the group that the psalmist belongs to. These folks do not surrender to their troubles. And they do not let their sorrows cause them to become cowards or cynics. But they make capital of their calamities. They make lemonade out of the lemons of life. They change their losses into gains. These are the folks that find that life is most worthwhile. That life is worth the living. And the world owes a great debt of gratitude to this group. To this type of people. Because you see, there are some folks who are helpful. Who have known little of sorrow. But as a general rule, the most, pe- the most helpful people on earth, the people that can give us the greatest strength in times of trial, are people who've had their own hearts broken. Those who've been to school in Gethsemane. Making lemonade out of the lemons of life. My friends, that is one of the finest of fine arts. What knowledge is more desired than that of changing pain into palms and crosses into crowns? We must. We must believe in the possibility of turning life's lemons into lemonade. We've got to believe that. Remember when Paul had a burning desire to preach the gospel in the capital city of Rome? Rome was the very center of the world. And yet Paul was thrust into jail and remained there for long, weary months. And it seemed as though his dreams of preaching in Rome were going to come to nothing. But we find Paul writing a letter from a prison cell in the city of Rome. And in the very beginning of that letter he wrote, we find these words. But I would that you would understand, brethren, 
that the things that have happened to me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. That's in Philippians 1 and verse 12. Paul is saying the things that seemed destined to thwart him had made it possible to realize his hope. On his way to Rome, there had been a terrible, terrible storm at sea. The storm had raged until all hope of reaching land was lost. You can read about it in Acts chapter 27. But that storm did not bring Paul to an untimely grave. But it gave him a place in the confidence and the heart of his fellow travelers on board that ship. And so Paul said, the things that have happened to me have fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. We also know Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And he asked God to remove it. Three times Paul asked God to remove that thorn in the flesh. God never removed it, but God said, my grace is sufficient. I'll give you the strength to deal with it, Paul. Paul was a man who was constantly finding his losses changed into gain. And after a long experimentation in the laboratory of life, Paul left us these words in Romans 8, verse 28. Therefore we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them that live according to His purpose. Now we have to realize something. Not every sorrow that comes to us is in accordance with the will of God. There are things we suffer that are contradictory to the will of God. And we ask ourselves, passing through those things, often in desperation, why does God not prevent those problems? Why does God not prevent those troubles? Why does God not prevent those deep waters we sometimes pass through? Because God, in His consistency, cannot prevent them. God has left us free, me and you. And therefore, if we've got a mind to do wrong, God can't stop it. My how often we don't recognize this. God sometimes gets blamed for wrongs against which God burns with far greater indignation than we do. Remember Joseph of old? He found his life in ruins. When Joseph found his life in ruins, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And he ended up in prison in Egypt. It would have been so easy, wouldn't it, for Job to have become bitter in his life. It would have been so easy for Joseph to have blamed God for all of his troubles. But Joseph's salvation was. He was wise enough to see that God was not to blame for the wrongs he suffered at the hands of men. Think how unjust it would have been 
for Joseph to have railed against God for what those who were hostile to God had actually done. It may be sometimes we've suffered wrong at the hands of some church member, some fellow Christian. Write this down. It's on the final exam. We must not blame God for wrongs that wound Him far worse than they wound us. We must remember, while God can't prevent much of the evil that you and I suffer, if we stay true to God, God will bring us through with honor. And more than that, God's going to make us richer for our losses. If we stay true to God, God will help us turn the lemons of life into lemonade. That was the experience of the psalmist. It is good for me that I've been afflicted. It's good for me I've been in trouble. That was his experience. Beloved, that's been the experience of countless others. Nothing can ever ultimately defeat us except our own rebellion to the will of God. Think about that. Think about what a mighty God we serve. Think about what a master we have. And think about what a gospel we have to preach. There's nothing that can ultimately wreck us as long as we live within the circle of God's will. When the storm of life are beating on our faces, when disease is preying upon our bodies, when death wrenches our treasures from our clinging fingers, we can be undismayed. We can shout to the heavens with Paul, all things we know. All things we know work together for good to them that love God. If we hold on to God, in spite of difficulties, one day we can sing with the psalmist, it's good for me to have been in trouble. But remember the second part to Paul's shout of victory in Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Are you listening? To them who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good to those that are living God's kind of life. God's way. Are you doing that? Is that the course of your life this morning? Are you living according to the purposes of God? Are you living for Jesus Christ as a Christian? Are there changes that need to be made? If there are changes that you need to make, to be living life within the will of God, to be living God's kind of life, God's way, come, let us help you make those changes while you have time, while you have opportunity, because it's the invitation of the Lord as together we stand and while we sing.